Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Good morning to our Facebook friends and guests visiting with us today. We are talking about the fight of faith. We're talking about remembering what should we remember? Memories. What is most important? You know, people take a lot of pictures today, a lot of video with their phones, and they, they post them everywhere. A lot of times it's just a story as to what they've been up to on a particular day. And for me, those kind of pictures, aside from a little awareness, they don't carry a lot of long-term significance because they're not very memorable in the long run. Something that I'd like to remember for a long time. So our family, from time to time, what we do is we break out the old albums, the old-fashioned ones, and, and something called a VHS. Anybody remember what those are? Or DVDs, if we want to look at birthdays, our wedding anniversary, and things of that nature. Just to look at, just to remember, just to reminisce, and have a great time doing that. And, and we bring back memories of those pictures. We enjoy them. But again, how many of those memories make a difference in the way that we live. How many of those bring back a remembrance that will have an impact on what we're doing today and tomorrow? Probably not many, but the Bible is different that way. It's a revelation of God to his people. This book, 66 Books in One, is like a video. It's a video of God's story and how it's shaped us and how it continues to each and every day. And that's why this book should never collect dust on a shelf. This book brings up our spiritual memory so we can live the way God wants us to today and tomorrow. So question right off the bat, how is your biblical memory? Our text today reflects this chapter and a call for us to remember, remember certain things about God, about Jesus and his gospel. Verse 8 says, remember Jesus Christ. Verse 14, which we'll get into next time, says, remind them of these things. So there's certain things here that we need to be aware of to understand. And what they do in the context of this chapter is they serve as a means, as a motivation for us to endure, to suffer well in the fight of faith. Because that's what the Apostle Paul's been talking about to his young apprentice, young Timothy, the pastor of the church, at Ephesus, and he was being tested. He was being tried. His patience in a, in a church that was being persecuted. Rome is being burned to the ground. There was false teaching going on there, cynicism about his ministry. He's a young guy, and on top of all that, he gets this letter from his mentor who's literally chained in a dungeon, in a pit, in Rome, awaiting his death at any time by execution, for nothing more than preaching the gospel. So even though our circumstances are different, many of us are still suffering today. And in ways right now, as you know, we haven't before or in a long time. So this is a massively important document to us, as it was to Timothy and that church as an exhortation and a preparation for Christian suffering and encouragement to endure it well. So after giving us some, some pictures last time of what a faithful believer looks like and lives like, remember those pictures? 
We were talking about being a good soldier, uh, an athlete, a disciplined athlete, a hardworking, patient farmer. Uh, here he gives us the reasons why, why we do that, reasons we are to live and suffer in this way that God has called us to. This is about motivation. So that's why I've broken this text down into two main points, things for us to remember why we fight this fight that we're called to. The first is to remember the model of our fight. And then I want you to remember the motivation, the motivation to fight. Let's look at the first one. Remember the model. There's a model here in verses 8 to 10. Follow with me again. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Amen. Paul saying, hold on to this idea here. There's three big things for us to remember, always to be remembering, day after day, because it's in the perfect tense of the Greek, and that's what we find in verse 8. And here's the first thing. When the Apostle Paul tells us to remember Christ and his resurrection, he's not just saying, hey, you might forget about what happened on that first Easter morning 2,000 years ago. So remember that gospel news event. Um, that is a gospel news event. Yes, that's important, but that's not really the most important thing to remember, really, to keep in mind with respect to what happened with the resurrection. More important even than the what happened is the who and the why it happened. That's what Paul's getting at here, because the who and the why is at the heart of the gospel, the good news itself. What is the heart of the gospel that we preach? Week in, week out, day in, day out. God saves sinners, and as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach then Christ crucified. That is the means by which people are saved, their sins are forgiven. And that's preached here two ways in this verse that we're commanded to remember. The first thing is Christ is a risen and coming again Savior and Lord. Why did Jesus, Yeshua was his Hebrew name, which literally means God saves, why did he die and resurrect? Now, he died on that cross to, again, provide forgiveness of sins, being Jesus, God in the flesh, as the only way to salvation, as the only way to escape Judgment, condemnation, to have peace with God and everlasting joy. That's what it's about. Then he was raised from the dead to vindicate God's power and his grace as the Lord conquers sin, death, and the devil. Here's the second thing here. The verse says we have to remember always that Jesus is the offspring or the descendant of someone. The King James renders this really well. He is the seed of literally, of King David of Israel as that risen, coming again, Savior, Messiah, everlasting King, who's going to rule over an everlasting kingdom. So Paul wants us to remember these things, that Jesus Christ is a redeemer, he's a priest, he's a prophet, he's a king, son of God, son of man, 100% God, 100% man, fulfilling all of God's covenant promises to his people. So important. And a big contextual reason why this is here is because Jesus, again, perfectly pictures or models for us how to suffer well and to encourage us then on how to do that. He's our example. He's our model. And this is a call for us to suffer. We've talked about that. Jesus was victorious. He won. 
Therefore, we win. Listen to 1 Peter 2.21, where it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you what? An example, so that you might follow in his steps. So Jesus is our model for being strong. Okay, we are victor, victors, we're conquerors. And so that should motivate us now to go on, to fight today and tomorrow, to endure in this life here and now, as we said last time with those three pictures. The path to the crown for Jesus was marked by a certain pattern, and it's supposed to be the same for us. Sean MacArthur said that path was marked, quote, by pain before pleasure, Sorrow before joy, humiliation before glorification, persecution before exaltation, death before resurrection, earthly hatred before heavenly worship. That was Jesus then, and that should be us now on the way to glory. So that's the theme really of this entire letter. We live out of faith in a sin-cursed, fallen world that the Lord, for his glory and our good, ordained even, permitted us to suffer in for greater purposes, to be tested in trials and tribulations, right? So Paul affirms that while he gives us another motivation to fight. Look at verse 9 of the text. For which I am suffering, bound with chains, tied up with chains, literally, as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound, not shackled. We afflicted, we're afflicted, enduring hardship here, which is a perfect connection from the beginning of the chapter as a motivation that we need to be strong because this suffering's coming. Now, you might hear this and you might say, well, Pastor Bernie, I, I, I don't have to be that strong, fight for the faith like Paul did because I live in the good old USA and we're not persecuted like that, right? We're in the land of the free. Well, last week I told you religious persecution, gospel tribulations are here. They're on the way in some degree or another. I think they're growing. I just read the story last week of a student at Georgia Gwinnett College, and that's, he was busted, if you will, for an open air proclamation of the gospel on their campus, even in a free speech zone they had set up. And his gospel preaching was regarded, get this, as fighting words, as being harmful, as being something that could incite violence. And then the decision from that school's administration led to him being shut down and disciplined, even as a student. Now, this young man's in the midst of suing that university right now on religious freedom, First Amendment grounds, but I think you get the idea. It's getting pretty serious, folks. However, big time, however, the word of God and his gospel, according to Paul, is not bound it's not chained or tied down like he was in writing this prison letter, okay? The Bible is moving. The gospel is being preached all over the world, in this country, at church. There are places that's happening sometimes at the risk of life. But the point is, gospel preaching and the advancement of the kingdom, it cannot be stopped. It, thousands are coming to Christ every day around the globe. Is that not great news? I think it is. I think it's great to know in advance when you fight a fight, the fight ultimately has already been secured, it's already been won, and you're on the winning side, okay? Mankind cannot stop God's word. Paul said in Colossians 1, it's always bearing fruit and increasing. 
You remember John Bunyan, the 17th century Puritan pastor, preacher? He wrote Pilgrim's Progress while he was imprisoned, similarly in England, for doing nothing more than preaching the gospel, justification by faith and grace alone. For several centuries, maybe still today, that book is second in sales only to the Bible in all the world in Christendom. He had a cell window that faced a high stone wall and that surrounded the prison. So it was impossible for people to see in or for him to see out as he preached. And on many days, he would just preach loud enough for his voice to carry over the wall so he could be heard on the outside. And there would be hundreds of listeners, believers, unbelievers even, gathering to hear the preaching of God's word, which was literally not imprisoned by stone walls or prison bars. All right? Paul, so many others have suffered for preaching the gospel. Today, who knows? Maybe MacArthur and his church in California may be imprisoned for nothing more than trying to hold worship services at his church in spite of some very restrictive orders. But needless to say, the word goes out and does what it's supposed to do. What does the prophet Isaiah tell us? The word that goes out from his mouth shall not return to him empty, but it shall accomplish that which he purposes and shall succeed in the thing for which he sent it. Hallelujah. That's Isaiah 55. That's precisely Paul's point here. The word of God is not, cannot ever be jailed. The word can't be shackled. It can't be destroyed. In fact, the Lord said, talking about the word and the spirit working together, that he would grow his church. And what did he say to his disciples about that process in the gospel, Matthew 16? He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, that, that's Paul's model. That's his motivation to keep up the good fight of faith until his last breath. He knows the Lord is going to conquer, be victorious, and win, and therefore we shall as well. That's why he could say at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians, talking about the resurrection, it says at the end of the very end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, listen to this, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. That's not a word for just be enduring, strong, immovable, always abounding or overflowing in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in what? Vain is not in emptiness or meaninglessness. It's going to work. Now you might say, Pastor, I've, I don't know about that. I've shared my faith. I've preached on my evangelism thing. Testimony as a witness to friends, family, co-workers, strangers, people I come in contact with. I don't seem to see any fruit from that. I'm really struggling there. In fact, I feel like I'm mocked or I'm ignored, right? Pushed aside, see the hand, right? Well, Paul has a response for that. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 or make a note of it in your Bible. You're going to see something very interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, actually, in verses 6 to 9, where that church was bragging about what leaders they were going to follow, etc. And Paul said this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he, nor he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, 
and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. I love that. You don't ever have to be discouraged because we all have a role to play in this. And we're going to have hits and misses, but the Lord's in control here, right? Who saves? You or God? Look at verse 10 of the text. Therefore, Paul said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Mark that, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What a promise. Now, that's, that's a challenging verse for some to deal with, to understand. So let me tell you up front what Paul's point is before I unpack it in a little bit more detail for you. What Paul is basically saying here is because I know that God is carrying on his work in salvation, God saves, he does it, it was possible for him to suffer for preaching the gospel because the pressure on him was removed. People's souls were not in his hand. wasn't dependent upon him to save, to preach, yes, to save, no. That's God's job. What we're talking about are real, true, born-again Christians are the elect people. That's a Greek word that literally means chosen by God to obtain salvation in Jesus Christ. In fact, another synonymous phrase with that, often used with this word, was God's chosen ones. That's how Paul used it in Colossians 3, and that's out of the two dozen or so times this word and its synonyms are used in the New Testament. Okay. The point is that Paul was comforted by, and he was confident in, his gospel preaching, even to the extent of being stoned, beatings, persecution, arrest, imprisonment, because he knows who was controlling the outcome. And you read about that all over the Bible, Romans 8 and 9, Ephesians 1 says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, so knowing that, Paul kept preaching the truth, like we talk about, he's sowing, sleeping for the elect, those that God chose to save, even though Paul didn't know, of course, who they were. All he knew was he had a call, he had a divine call, he had a heart and a command to go and make disciples, to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord ordains the means and the end to redemption. And what he's ordained is that we are the means or the way in which people are saved by proclaiming the truth. We show and share Christ. That's how God ordered it. He could have done it any number of ways. He could have done it unilaterally, by himself, supernaturally. But he said, no, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, and there has to be a preacher. There have to be disciple makers and witnesses that are giving their testimony and introducing people to Christ. It's, pray, it's like the idea of praying and doing. Hey, if God is sovereign, why pray? Well, we're commanded to, and God use it, uses it as a means to an end. It's the same idea here. As Jesus is referred to in Hebrews, Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. Ultimately, it's him. But he demands that we preach Christ crucified to the lost, to the unredeemed. And that's his way to make it happen. And you know what? I love that. There is harmony. He harmonizes eventually God's sovereign grace and man's human responsibility in people coming to faith. How is that possible exactly? 
I don't know. I don't know for sure, but I believe it and it's a perfect plan. You might say, well, Bernie, why do you believe it then? Because I have a Bible and I can read it and it's all over the Bible. It's all over the scriptures. So Paul's ministry, get this, is a model for us to remember as well. The Lord and Paul. We keep reading, we keep hearing from Paul about his endurance, his perseverance in the faith, suffering well in opposition. That's what he's trying to communicate to Timothy. He knows he's in it and things may get worse. Timothy, get ready, be strong. And if we go through this and come out on the other side for Christ, that affirms our salvation, right? Confirms it. That echoes our series, basic Christianity, that we just finished from 1 John, right? The Lord said this in his own words in Matthew 24. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. It's not that the endurance saves. The endurance proves the salvation. It means when you hit the finish line, you won the race. His half-brother James put it this way, James 1.12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved or tested he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. With everything crumbling around us right now, maybe around your home, your community, God forbid, our country, do we, will we stay with Jesus? Will we endure? If you don't, heads up. All that's going to do is prove that you and to others that you were never of Christ, in Christ, or with Christ. So the final passage in this text is the final motivation as we move from the model, remembering the model of fighting for faith, to the motivation itself. Let's remember the motive that's in verses 11 through 13. And it all fits together in one flow, almost like a hymn. Some early church fathers believe this passage was an early church hymn. It's a statement. It's almost like a creed. Listen to it. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Three verses there. Paul's telling Timothy and us three things. And it's a saying in three pairs that are contrasted here with a positive and a negative between believers and unbelievers, really. It's a further motivation for us to fight the faith. And it's not just any saying here. This statement literally means it's something worthy of faith, something to be trusted in that Paul's talking about. And this would be something like a creed that you hear about, like the Apostles' Creed. You've heard of the Nicene Creed based on good biblical theology. Uh, centuries later, you had the Westminster Confession of Faith or the London Baptist Convention uh, Confession. This one, this one is better. This one is from the source itself, from the original source. And the first pair, look at the first pair in verse 11. It's life and death spiritually. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also live with him. What is that talking about? That's a critically important gospel statement there that's really fleshed out really well in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 10. In fact, it's the vocabulary there that we use when we baptize believers at Christ Community Church. We immerse them underwater and we say, you have been buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection, even so walk in the newness of life. Likeness. 
That's the key word of what I just said there, okay? Because as we die in Christ, we identify with his death, then we can have spiritual life in him that's symbolized by his resurrection. See, right, right here and now, the Bible says we count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ Jesus. In other words, when you became a Christian, you died in order to live. That sounds paradoxical, but it's true. What it means, in other words, is that your old sin, selfish nature died, okay? And others should see and know that, by the way, and that God caused you to be born again. He gave you a new birth. He changed your heart and nature so that you would repent and believe in Christ and then live this new life. So you died in order to live. That's why you should have a before and after testimony in your testimony when you tell people about how God saved you. Look at the next pair from the beginning of verse 12, the first clause there. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Just stop right there. Interesting. What is our hope? It's talking hope. What is our hope as Christians? It's the hope of glory. It's the hope of heaven. It's the hope of our resurrection, getting our perfect resurrected bodies like Christ to rule and reign in his kingdom on earth, to join him in that. That is a promise every Christian should look for expectantly and excitedly each and every day, because when that happens, then we'll see Christ for who he is and as he is, as 1 John 3 tells us. Now, listen, you might doubt this idea, ruling, reigning. I mean, Christ is the king. We're not the king, right? But the doctrine is biblical. We'll have responsibilities and, and blessings in doing this in his kingdom. Psalm 149 seemed to prophesy it, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 tells us we're going to judge angels and the world and nations. I'm not exactly sure what that's going to look like exactly when. I believe it might be referring to the millennial kingdom in which the Lord comes back. And we're resurrected, we will reign with him. But again, the idea that is there is this promise is conditional. It depends on something. What's the word? What's the condition here? That you endure. A Christian has to endure or suffer or persevere, hang in there when the going gets tough. Okay. Again, the doctrine of perseverance or persistence of the saints is what you're looking at here. It's essential to salvation because then you know your salvation is real by your enduring. You suffer patiently here and now for the cause of Christ. And if you do, you make it through to the end. You do what Paul did and is able to say at the end, toward the end of this letter. If you look at chapter 4, verse 7, there Paul in this letter writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's what you want to be able to say. Same thing. That's the final checklist to get your passport to heaven, the new heaven and earth, stamped once and for all. You made it. And that's because suffering, folks, leads to glory in the Christian faith. It really does. So as Christ suffered, ruled, and reigned, so were we because we're fellow heirs of that inheritance of the kingdom, according to Romans 8. Third pair of truths. Look at the end of verse 12. If we deny him, he will also deny us. That's interesting, because after the first two lines or pairs of statements, we're talking about believers. The next two deal with those that turn out to be, I think, non-believers. This is Paul, again, echoing John's first letter in dealing with apostasy. Big word, it simply means someone that departs, denies the faith they once proclaimed. It's talking about a traitor to the faith, actually. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, he even said... 
Watch out, in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And that's an age-old problem in and around the church. They dealt with it back then, 2,000 years ago. We deal with it today. And here again, an apostate is a final Christ rejecter. They refuse the gospel after having been a professor, a confessor of it. They deny it. Hebrews 10 puts it this way. Those who shrink back and are destroyed, referring to apostates, they are compared to those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's the endurance. The point is, is if we deny or reject Christ by the time we're done here, we're done, period. You say, what about Peter, that apostle? He denied the Lord three times after he was arrested and taken to the Sanhedrin for the trial. Does that mean Peter lost his salvation and somehow got it back? He was an ex-Christian, became a Christian all over again? No. It means he sinned, lacking sanctifying faith at that moment. He denied the Lord, but he repented of that sin before Christ, before he died in this life, right? The sin of apostasy that we're talking about is final in this life. There's no repentance of it. So if you remain a gospel-rejecting sinner or a disobedient fan, you might say, of the Lord, and you die that way, he will deny you on Judgment Day. And there's a great parallel to that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7 itself, where you had people saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we proclaim? Didn't we name you? Didn't we cast out a few demons, do some religious stuff is the idea? And Jesus really knew their hearts. They really weren't obeying his will and word. And he said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, your sin, because I never knew you. He never knew them intimately in the salvific sense. He obviously knew who they were. And that's what that knowing means. That's why it's interesting that in this text, the NIV translators, they chose the word disown instead of deny for that Greek word that's translated. That's a pretty good rendering, actually, because when you think of denial, it's just re rejecting maybe a stated truth. And there are people that do that. They deny the gospel on the basis of the deity of Christ or sufficiency of scripture, Bible doesn't work for them anymore, etc. But here, disown means you're you're rejecting association, relationship with someone. You're rejecting the person of Christ, you see. So you think of Judas as the poster boy for all this, for apostasy, and he makes up a pretty good poster there. And you might say, well, I'm not Judas. I would never sell out the Lord Jesus for cash like he did, would I? No, but people who profess faith in Christ don't possess the spirit of Christ They'll sell them out for less. They'll sell them out for the world. They'll sell them out for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Just think of it generally today as money, sex, and power. That'll be more important to people ultimately in their life than Jesus, the Jesus they profess to know. Titus 1.16, Paul wrote him, that church planter, and he really describes apostates really well there. He said, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. It's what you do. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Hmm. Tens of thousands of people that once called themselves Christians later denied him and sold him out in different ways. And that's the we that the parallel verse 13 is referring to. That's the idea we talk about with deceived 
self-proclaimed or nominal Christians. You've heard that? Who's a nominal Christian? Nominal means in name only, what they name themselves. But they really say one thing and they do another. But on the other hand, if you persevere until the end, you're an overcomer by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit of God, so you get to reign with Him. Okay, That's the finish line we're talking about. That's my motivation folks, to keep on moving, to keep on serving, loving, living for Christ. I mean, the Lord summarized it well in Matthew's gospel again. Let me give you chapter 10. Very quickly, just a little word from the Lord, verse 32 there. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Wow. Final pair of truths from this great statement in this passage from verse 13. Look at it. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he can deny, he cannot deny himself. Okay. This is our loyalty to Jesus Christ, who's loyal to his own, always has been, always will be. In fact, that's a characteristic and attribute of Jesus being God in the flesh, of God. In the book of Psalms, this is a familiar theme. God is called the one who is steadfast in faithfulness, right? The Lord is the promise keeper of all time. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. The Bible says, he who promised is faithful. Nominal Christians may be faithless, not Jesus, not God. He's always faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Similarly, Paul in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's his promise. It's promise, people. People might deny him, but he will never deny his own, if they're really his own, and he'll never deny himself. He can't. It's his nature. Doesn't that truth, doesn't the faithfulness of Christ just comfort you, motivate you to endure or suffer for him? That's what our text has been about today. If we remember our models for suffering, enduring as our motivation. So let me close here with an Old Testament text, actually, from Lamentations chapter 3, written under the inspiration of the Spirit by the weeping prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah preached, he preached and preached during a time of captivity and for Israel, with little success. There were few converts in his ministry, people coming to faith in Yahweh. And aside from the book that bears his name, he wrote the book of Lamentations. Lamentation is just to mourn heavily. And that's a book that really reveals his heart. It's a heart of uh, affliction, obviously lamentation, mourning in this life. And it's there, it's there you're going to find a child of God, a prophet, who in the midst of his suffering, and his hardship he endures. Listen carefully as to how he did that. How was Jeremiah able to get through? What was his motivation to keep fighting? Lamentations chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 19 to 26. He says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. It's a poison. My soul continually remembers it and is bound down within me. But this I call to mind. Mark that, remembering, 
This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. In what? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy has never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your thy faithfulness. Great song. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Amen. Join me in a word of prayer, if you would. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit being with us. We thank you for this mode of technology in which the Spirit can still move and work in hearts because your word, your gospel, is not bound. It's not chained. You are sending it out in a fruitful way, doing with it what you will. People around the globe that are listening are being converted, are being born again, given a new life, and they're turning to you away from their sin and self, their old self, and they're trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin so that they can receive a new life, everlasting joy, and be rescued from judgment to come. It's what it means to become a Christian, to be saved. And I pray that there are some watching and listening right now that are right now giving themselves back to you. They're now repenting and believing in Jesus. They're turning to you, trusting in Christ alone as the one that forgave their sins. May that be happening today and for God's people, all of God's people. You've given all of us a ministry. You've given us all a common ministry of making, maturing, and multiplying disciples, even as we suffer. That means in having to endure suffering. So I pray that we would remember, as we learned today, Jesus and Paul, among many others, Peter, as well, as our models for suffering and what the motivations are that you're doing the saving, Lord. You've already won the victory, Lord. We have a new life. We have a testimony that gives evidence that we're on the winning side, Lord. So that should encourage us, motivate us again to continue to go on in showing and sharing Jesus Christ day in, day out to friends, family, co-workers, students, neighbors, as we love them. Help us to do that today, Lord. Help us to endure suffering in a new, fresh way as we're in times we've never dealt before, haven't dealt with in a long time in our culture, in our society, with pandemics and civil unrest and economic woes. You're above all of that. You're sovereign control of all of that, Lord. Holy Spirit, help us to endure. Help us to suffer well. Now that we have understood today why we fight this fight of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people online said, Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurchcom.org. And look for the giving tab at the top of the homepage. 